spring break. Not till next week. Well, let's bow in prayer as we begin. Father, it is our sincere prayer that you would mirror us in your own dear Son, and that the reflection of his life in our own might magnify and glorify your name. We pray this in the name of the eschatological David, even Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, we're looking at 2 Samuel 18, verse 19, through chapter 19, verse 39 this evening. The death of Absalom and the collapse of his rebellion reverses the vectors of David's most recent story. Our divinely inspired narrator highlights these reverse vectors as he features the return of the king. The directional or locational vectors are reversed from the Transjordan to the Cisjordan, from Hanayim to Jerusalem. The mirror of David's reversal eastward towards exile is now reflected in the reverse reversal westward towards restoration. David's story is sovereignly administered by the Lord God who graciously brings back the shepherd of Israel, brings him back to Zion, but not on account of David's worthiness or merit. The reverse of the hatred and enmity of the Antichrist, Absalom, is due to God's acts on behalf of David. It is not due to David's efforts, which are plunged into the abyss of denial, self-pity, injustice, and misplaced loyalty. The post-Bathsheba, post-Nathan Oracle David continues to be the virtual reverse of the shepherd lad whose sling and sword were instruments of justice, instruments of loyal devotion to the Lord, as well as to his comrades and his compatriots. Here, on the return of the king, the narrator unfolds the drama of David's story by mirror reflection of characters. And in that mirror into which David himself is drawn, in that mirror we behold more than individual characters. Our narrator unfolds character in these mirror images. Our narrator introduces us to Ahimaaz on David's exit from Jerusalem 
and our narrator mirrors Ahimaaz in the reversal in David's return to Jerusalem. We meet Shimei on David's sorrowful march beyond the Mount of Olives. We meet Shimei again on David's return to the fords of the Jordan. The narrative mirror features Shimei in eastward vector and in its reverse westward. And does our narrator show us Ziba? boldly parading with the king as he journeys eastward, at the same time noting the role of Mephibosheth as David retreats from Jerusalem. Then, too, our narrator presents Ziba and the bold, bedraggled Mephibosheth as David journeys westward. The narrative mirrors reciprocal in the pivotal reversal. And, of course, there is Joab, the ubiquitous Joab, who trails David eastward. Joab is also present at the defeat of Absalom and the return of the king to his house in Jerusalem. Joab in the narrator's mirror the reverse narrative mirror of David's exile and return. We must follow our inspired narrator and peer into the mirror, the mirror reflection of the characters who appear in the reverse paradigm. David driven out of Jerusalem to the east bank David brought over to the West Bank back to Jerusalem. The mirror which reflects on David and his reversal will also include others, others in duplicate, others whose character will be reflected as David's will be in the mirror of East versus West, Egress versus ingress, exile versus return. Our narrator holds up a mirror at the pivot point of the David Absalom drama. Let us begin by taking note of the geographical locus of that pivot point the place where David's exile is reversed in David's return. It is found in 2 Samuel 19, verse 15, the town of Gilgal. At Gilgal, the drama of exile is reversed with the drama of return. Gilgal is the pivot point of David's reverse fortunes. Gilgal, the place where the former things are behind David. Gilgal, the place where new things are before David. Gilgal, the place where the old yields to the new. The old misery is over for David and the new prospect of restoration to the city of Zion is before David. 
Gilgal, the place of new beginnings for David. Gilgal, the place of transition. Gilgal, the place of pivotal transition for the monarchy of David and Israel. Is not Gilgal also a mirror reflection? Has our inspired narrator not once before placed us at Gilgal as the transition occurs, as the redemptive historical transition occurs in the monarchy of Israel? Was it not at Gilgal that Samuel set forth the royal character of the king of Israel and his kingdom? 1 Samuel 11, verse 15, through chapter 12, verse 25. Was it not at Gilgal that the pivotal transition, the redemptive historical transition from theocracy to monarchy was ratified? Was it not at Gilgal in the days of Samuel when a new beginning was inaugurated for the Israel of God a ratification that the former era of the theocratic judges was over, canceled, superseded, annulled by the new age of the kingdom of Israel. Was it not at Gilgal that old things passed away and new things were revealed? David does not come to Gilgal in 2 Samuel 19 to reverse the history of redemption. David does not come to Gilgal to restore the theocracy of the judges. No, David cannot go back. Israel cannot go back. God does not go back. David comes to Gilgal to mirror the renewal of the monarchy and the kingdom of God instituted by God's prophet Samuel at Gilgal years before. The narrative mirror of Gilgal in 2 Samuel 19.15 is retrospective, is reflective, is prospective of a pivotal new beginning for the kingdom of David in the history of redemption. From Gilgal of David, the history of redemption unfolds to the son of this father, to Solomon, to the king in peace. And if neither David nor Solomon can bring in the eschatological new beginning, it is because only a God-man can inaugurate and establish the eschatological kingdom of God. A kingdom not of this world, a kingdom mirrored in the pivotal transition signaled by the advent, incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. The true and eschatological David. And we, we cannot go back either. We cannot go back to a theocracy or an earthly monarchy 
or even an absolute absolutization of the cosmic heaven and earth. No, even we cannot go back because God does not. He goes on to the eternal heavenly kingdom, which is unlike anything in this arena, because that arena in which it is, is eternal. Not temporal. Turning now to chapter 19, verse 19. Our first mirror involves Ahimeaz. Ahimeaz here, a reflection of Ahimeaz whom we first met in 1536, incidentally, but who plays a more crucial role in 1717 to 21, consequentially. In chapter 17, Ahimeaz carries a message, a crucial, crucial message for the salvation of David and his retreating entourage. Get over the Jordan before Absalom pins you up against the river and you are unable to flee to the east bank. Now, mirror-like, Ahimaaz wants to carry a message. Ahimaaz carries a message to David on the west bank, chapter 17. Here, chapter 19, Ahimaaz carries a message to David on the east bank. The messages reflect one another. They mirror the deliverance of the king. And Ahimaaz, he is a mirror reflection of himself on both the west bank and the east bank. He is the eager, even importunate messenger with news, good news for David. Flee from the counsel of Ahithophel, lest you be destroyed, chapter 17. You have not been destroyed by the army of Absalom, for the Lord has delivered you, chapter 19. Ahimaaz, ever eager to deliver good news. And so he badgers Joab to let him go to go from the battlefield in the forest of Ephraim to David at Mahanaim, yea, to run with this joyous news that David's throne has been restored. But what does Joab do? He forbids Ahimaaz to carry bad news, Bad news about the death of Absalom, verse 20. And yet, Joab does dispatch a Cushite with the very message he prevents Ahimaaz from carrying. What is Joab up to? Is he just finally worn down by Ahimaaz's pestering pleas? Or is he the mirror of himself? Joab always in character as Joab. 
The manipulation of the messengers by Joab is true to Joab's manipulative character. Recall how he ignored or manipulated messages from Absalom when the latter asked for an audience with his father, chapter 14, verse 29. Joab manipulated David by keeping Absalom away from him. Now Joab manipulates David by keeping Ahimaaz away from him, at least keeps him away with the kind of news he knows Ahimaaz will deliver. Good news. Joab knows Ahimaaz will downplay the bad news about Absalom's death, so he sends someone who will tell it like it is. Someone who will straightforwardly spit out the fact that Absalom is dead. Joab wants his messenger to force David to come to grips with the death of the traitor. And Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz will gloss over the rebel's demise, perhaps even declining to tell the king straight out Absalom is dead. And Joab Joab wants David to feel the pain, to feel the pain of Absalom's death, even as he wanted Absalom dead in spite of David's order that Absalom be spared. Joab will not spare David any more than he spared Absalom. Go tell the king what you have seen, verse 21. Tell him that you have seen that Absalom is dead, he tells the Cushite. Now, at the same time, Joab cannot anticipate that in eventually relenting and allowing Ahimaaz to run, verse 23, that Ahimaaz will speed like an Olympic marathon runner and overtake the Cushite so as to arrive with his news first. Some have suggested that by running by the way of the plain, Ahimaaz takes a different route in order to overtake or pass up the Cushite, as the New American Standard Version reads. The geography is something like this. If we have the forest of Ephraim here, Mahanaim here, and we have the Jordan coursing this way, the plains of the Jordan are in this, in this region here. And the suggestion is that, the suggestion that some make is that Ahimaaz runs out of the scene of the battle in the forest of Ephraim and goes by the way of the plain, whereas the Cushite goes through the thick underbrush of the forest of Ephraim. That suggestion envisions two different Routes for two different runners, one through the forest land, the Cushite, one through the plains bordering the east bank of the Jordan between the river and the more dense forest land. Now, I admit there is a measure of plausibility to that suggestion, but is it not also possible? Is it not also plausible? as happens frequently in distance marathons, that the adrenaline rush, the adrenaline rush added to Ahimaaz's overflowing eagerness, 
simply enabled him to catch up with the Cushite and pass him by, regardless of the route he took. Or to use the vernacular, Ahimaaz was stoked, and like the proverbial proverbial beep-beep, I'm a roadrunner, left the Cushite in a cloud of dust. In any event, we arrive at the gates of Mahanaim with David in anticipation sandwiched between the dispatch of the messengers, verses 19 to 23, and the report of the messengers, verses 28 to 32. David, between the two gates, verse 24, between the messengers' two reports, David, betwixt and between the two gates, betwixt and between Absalom alive and Absalom dead, the in-between state of David's knowledge is reflected in his in-between position, midway between the inner gate and the outer gate. David alone In this space in between, this space in between, with a lone watchman in the tower above him, reflecting his own solitary vigil, with a lone runner first on the horizon, the loneliness of the king reflected by our narrator in lone companions. And how agonizing is this loneliness? Waiting, waiting for news, some news, any news, waiting alone. Waiting as the two messengers are dispatched. Waiting as the two messengers are dispatched with two separate Commissions. Why do you have to go over this twice? Once is enough. One messenger is enough to bring me the news I am waiting, waiting all alone to hear. The slow advance of the runner coming from a distance and not just one, two runners on the horizon. Why two? Why does it take two to run from afar to the gate? Why is this taking so long? Taking so long. The narrator places us as readers squarely within within David's expectant sandals and slows down the narrative punchline with duplicate messengers, nearly duplicate messages and a tedious notification from the lone man in the tower of the long-expected news coming closer and closer and closer. And lone David, 
Lone David jumps at every notification from the watchman. David alone talking himself into good news. Into good news with every approach of the messengers. It is a messenger alone. Then he brings good news. Now there are two messengers. Then he too brings good news. The first messenger runs like a himaaz. Now notice the doublet. He is a good man with good news. David psychs himself, psychs himself into wishful thinking. All alone he projects good news as he projects wish fulfillment. How long has it taken David to learn of Absalom's fate? Our narrator has drawn out the scene twice over. Twofold dispatch of messengers, twofold report of the messengers, only after 13 verses, count them, 13 verses of deliberate narrative buildup does David get the punchline in verse 32. This is the second time. This is the second time our narrator has used narrative detail to delay, to heighten suspense, to keep his readers sensing the drama, to build narrative tension in this drama by delay. Even the sense of space Even the sense of space, which our narrator highlights, adds to the tension. One runner far away, drawing closer. Then a second runner far away, drawing closer. We readers see the distant figures slowly, all too slowly reducing the space between. Space between the horizon and the gates of the watchtower. And then with the man on the watchtower, we see and recognize Ahimaaz, whom David recognizes as a former bearer of good news. And Ahimaaz shouts as he closes the space, closes the space between himself And the watchtower, Ahimaaz sees David at the gate and shouts. Shouts because he is not yet at the gate. Ahimaaz shouts one word, Shalom. Shalom. One word, he cries out. Shalom. And oh, what echoes of good wishes did that lone word conjure up in David's memory? Shalom was the last word, the last word that David spoke to Absalom. Chapter 15, verse 9. Shalom, the first word David hears as he seeks news of Absalom. And now... Ahimaaz has at last reduced the space, the space between himself and the feet of the king, 
prostrate at David's feet after proclaiming shalom. Ahimaaz blesses the Lord God of David and Israel with good news of deliverance. The Lord has delivered you from your enemies, my king. And David obsessed David, possessed David, one-track mind David. David dismisses the Lord's mercy, dismisses the Lord's mercy in delivering him from his enemies. But what about Absalom? What about the news, the good news I have been waiting for, waiting alone, waiting within these gates, closed on myself with but one solitary thought? What about Absalom? Ahimaaz avoids the question and David avoids him. Step aside. Stand aside. You do not have the news I want. Did Ahimaaz know that? Did Ahimaaz know he didn't have the news David wanted to hear, so he evaded the question? You don't have the news I want, the news I am obsessed with knowing. Stand aside. Impatient David. Impatient David focused upon himself, on his lone self, not engaging Ahimaaz, stand aside, I won't deal with you anymore or with your news. It is not the last time in this narrative that David will tell someone to stand aside, I won't deal with your plea. To him as, I will wait some more. Alone, you stand aside. Stand out of the way. I will wait some more alone for the coming messenger. And the Cushite, he duplicates the first message Ahimaaz sought to deliver. Verse 31 is a virtual duplicate of verse 19. He, too, cites the Lord's grace in delivering David from the hand of his enemies, echoing not only Ahimaaz once in verse 19, but Ahimaaz twice in verse 28. As if David must come face to face with reality twice over and to make doubly certain when David doubles the question he put to Ahimaaz in verse 29, the Cushite repeats. Even in parallel phrases, the Cushite repeats in verse 32 what he had initially reported in verse 31. It is doubly emphatic. Our neighbor, our narrator has got doublets all over this place. What he had initially underscored, Absalom is dead. The doublets act as a reality check 
Absalom, Absalom is as those who rose up against you. Absalom, Absalom is as those who rise up against you, my lord, the king. Absalom, Absalom is dead, dead. And now the doublet consumes David with grief. O Absalom, my son, my son, verse 33. Genuine grief sorrows over the death, especially the death of a renegade child. Genuine paternal grief laments even to tears for a child who would not who would not turn from his or her evil. Notice verse 32, turn from evil to embrace the Lord God, whose grace is sufficient to deliver the most rebellious of children. In grieving for Absalom in this way, with sincere sorrow, David is not to be faulted. But, but David's grief is an obsession, a masochistic obsession. He wishes he had died. He wishes he had died instead of the renegade son. And now, may we ask, would David have died instead of rebellious Absalom? Why, he would have been killed by that renegade reprobate. He would have been captured, tortured, executed, murdered, just like Absalom did to Amnon. What kind of death wish is this that blubbers, I wish you had killed me? This is not godly sorrow. This is self-loathing. And it is sin. It is doting on evil, doting on evil when the goodness of the Lord is before you. David, God the Lord has graciously delivered you from a murderer, a murderous child who vowed to kill you, to take your life unjustly to brutally break the fifth and the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. David, get real. This son of yours for whom you grieve overmuch was a conniving traitor, a scheming murderer, a flagrant rapist, and a political hypocrite. David, get real. What tears do you shed that God's justice has been done? God's justice has been done in stopping him from making you his next victim. In stopping him from murdering others, raping others, betraying others, making havoc of an entire nation with his hypocrisy, his con games, his fawning pretense of being the true friend of the aggrieved and the oppressed. David, he was a liar. He was a hater of his father. David, he was a cold-blooded murderer. David, he was a broad daylight rapist. David, get real. Weep, David. 
yes, weep, that Absalom refused to repent. He refused to live by the law of God, the law of heaven. Yes, weep, David, that he violated every sacred relation, father, son, brother, half-brother, father, concubine, king, country. Weep, David, that Absalom would not turn, would not have life, would not seek God's grace, would not seek God's face. Absalom would not. He would not. He would not throw himself at your feet and confess, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Forgive me, Father. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for my wicked, evil heart, my wicked, evil deeds, my wicked, evil disposition. Forgive me, Father in heaven, and create in me a clean heart, O God. A new heart, a heart of flesh. And take away this heart of stone, O Lord my God, and make me new. Regenerate me. Give me the birth from above. Give me the eschatological birth, the eschatological new birth, that I may be born again. Born from above, born from heaven. Father, I weep. I weep out of my sorrow, my brokenness, my contrition. Father, I weep so that you may not weep. So that you may rejoice over my salvation, my repentance, my regeneration. Father, I weep. Father, do not you weep, save they be tears of joy. And then, Father, we too shall weep together for the unsearchable riches of the grace of God. We shall weep together so that together we shall come to that place where we shall weep no more together, but rejoice forever and ever and ever, world without end. But David descends into self-absorbed grief, not God-absorbed grief. And the pattern of his lament is a descent into obsession Obsession with a child who hated and despised him. Notice the structure of David's lamentation. It is outlined on your hand up. My son, my son, Absalom. Absalom, my son, my son. My son, Absalom. Absalom, my son, my son. It is what we, talk, we, what we label a stair-step terrace pattern. And you will notice that the last word in a phrase is the first word of the next phrase. 
And you will notice that the terrace is a descending stair step, a descending paradigm of David descending into the bathos of his grief. And you will also notice that the first line, my son, my son Absalom in 1833, is precisely reversed in the last line, 19.4, Absalom, my son, my son. The paradigm comes full circle. It circles back upon itself as David <clears throat> in an endless circle of grief, obsession, and self-pity spirals downward, circling, gyrating downwards, step downwards into abysmal self-pity. David descends further and further into his self-absorbed grief. 2 Samuel 18 closes with the mirror, the mirror of Absalom reflected on David. Absalom, who wanted to be David, has reversed the reflection. Now David wants to be Absalom. What a pathetic portrait of this once noble king is before us in this blubbering litany. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The mirror of a father re-imaged in his renegade son and the tragic death wish of the father longing to change places with that rebel son. This terrace pattern lament does not commend David beyond the paternal justice of grief or a dying child or son. Please notice that that is commendable. But what is not commendable here is this bathos of self-absorption and obsession. We will not commend David for making a hero out of this reprobate son nor will we justify him in seeking to be dead that that son might have lived and continued his reprobate ways. (coughs) And now Joab will hold up the mirror, the chiastic mirror to shame David into a reality check with the concomitant threat, the real concomitant threat, that he still stands to lose his crown, his thorn, his throne, and his kingdom 
if he does not begin to act the part once more, to act like he wears his crown, sits his throne, and rules his kingdom. Joab will hold up the mirror, the chiastic mirror, to David. The behold, in verse 1 of chapter 19, not only allows us, the readers, to view the scene, to behold it, to see what others see, the behold is duplicated in verse 8 and frames this unit. We behold David in the tower above the gate, again solitary, alone in tears, verse 1. We behold David descended from the tower, seated at the gate, surrounded by his returning troops as they pass in review, verse 8. The reverse paradigm which flows through Joab's chiasm, a reverse chiasm, the paradigm of David alone consumed with grief is reversed in David bolstered by his troops, receiving their support as they gather round him and pass before him. This proximate scene at Mahanaim reprises the remote scene at Mahanaim in chapter four, chapter 18, verse 4, when David stood at the gate, stood at the gate as his troops sallied forth in review on their way to confront Absalom in the forest of Ephraim. Now returned from the forest of Ephraim and their victory over the arch-rebel, David and his troops meet again at the gate of Mahanaim. Our narrative has come full circle once more. David has come full circle, but not without the hand of Joab. Joab acts once more like Joab in character manipulating David with a speech that shames the obsessed monarch. Joab is, of course, a master of this tactic by now. He had shamed David with his erstwhile foolishness in covenanting, covenanting with Abner, all the while manipulating David into passive inaction while he, Joab, twisted his sword into Abner's side and slew him. Joab had shamed David again into passive inaction with a carefully contrived report of the death of Uriah. David manipulated from his erstwhile fury at the folly of an attack upon the walls of Rabbah a man manipulated into docile stoicism at the words, Uriah is dead. Well, that's a tough thing about war. You lose some of your best friends, don't you? 
And when David stewed over his renegade, murderous son Absalom in exile, banished across the Jordan with his blue blood grandparents, Joab engineered the return of the rebel in order to break David out of the funk of moping for the punk. But when Absalom manipulates Joab to secure an audience with the king, Joab, like the proverbial elephant, vows never to forget the twit or his scorched fields. And in the forest of Ephraim, Joab manipulates David once more, flagrantly disobeying his king and commander-in-chief. Joab takes his revenge on Absalom, not with one spear, not with two, but with three spears through the heart. Passive David would not have given Absalom what he deserves, calculates Joab, so I will serve as judge, jury, and executioner. After all, it's an act of war, and the battlefield will provide my cover just as the battlefield provided David's cover in the murder of Uriah. You think two can't play this game, David? I can be your mirror, you just watch me. Now, Joab engages in another confrontation, a confrontation with a passive, inactive David, and in the longest sentence in First and Second Samuel, opens up a machine gun of words, as J.P. Falkman labels it, a barrage of words to jolt David into action. His goal is to reverse the reversal in David. David, who has turned the thrill of victory into the moping, mooning of defense, defeat, drags his victorious troops down with him. Notice verse 2, where David succeeds in conforming the victors unto himself, into shame-faced, silent, moping mourners like himself. Verse 3 portrays the army slinking back into Mahanaim, stealing their way like shameful thieves, back to their home base. And David, with this slinking, skulking horde of soldiers passing beneath him in humiliation and shame, David, verse 4, covers his face, see no evil, and bellows out loud, drowning out the clanking armor and shuffling feet, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, I don't want to hear anything from this army. Notice the sandwich. Joab and the troops squeeze between the fixating David. 1833, oh, my son, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 19, 1-3, Joab and the troops. And 194, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, again. David's grief overshadows David's grief squeezes 
his triumphant general and his victorious troops. David's grief overshadows, surrounds the thrill of victory. Joab is galvanized into action. If David is passive and mopingly inactive, even plugging his ears and covering his eyes, in order to deny reality, Joab realizes it is time for a wake-up call, for an emotional and verbal slap upside the head. It is time to shake this simpering king out of his pity party. Verse 5, you cover your face, your face. You cover the faces of your servants' soldiers with shame. You plug up your ears. You stop up your ears from the cries and cheers of those who have saved your life. And not only your life. You whiner, but how many of your wives and other children, not to mention your harem, that reprobate son of yours already raped your harem, how many of others related to you do you think would remain alive if you were dead? This pup not only wanted you dead, everyone who reminded him of you was as good as dead as well. A mass royal family pogrom so that only Absalom remained, only his name endured, only his heir, his dynasty, his monument, his antichrist kingdom remained. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. There is the Job chiasm perfectly reversed. Look at you. What do your actions reveal? You have told me and this whole army by your simpering actions today that you would be glad if Absalom were alive and we were dead, all of us. What kind of gratitude is that? What kind of gratitude is that to us? We who put our lives on the line for you. You skulking and hiding under the covering of your grief, your bellowing, obsessive grief, snap out of it. Notice, notice how Joab keeps David's attention off the guilt and shame which he, Joab, possesses. Joab brilliantly, if not effectively, diverts David's attention from his own guilt in murdering Absalom and his own shame in disobeying his king's command. Joab turns the tables on David again. Not me, David, you. Don't pay attention to me. You are the one with a problem. Snap out of it. And now emboldened Joab, verse 7, threatens David. He even threatens David with an oath sworn before the Lord God. Joab, the manipulator again, even naming the name of the Lord in order to control David. Joab drips. He drips with hypocrisy. But his charge to David is not hypocritical. It is political. It is realpolitik. If you don't go out and command this army, you're not going to have a throne, nor a kingdom, nor an army. And I, I, Joab, may become a worse nemesis to you than Absalom. Absalom. 
Because if you don't ingratiate yourself to this army, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think you've had troubles? Troubles with Saul? Troubles with Ishbosheth? Troubles with the Syrians? Trouble with the Ammonites? The Moabites? The Philistines? Troubles with Absalom? You think you've had troubles in the past? Well, if you don't show your face and go out and sit in the gate while your loyal army gathers round, I swear by the Lord, you will experience only the beginning of sorrows. And everything up to this point will see as, think as, up to this point will seem as child's play as a taffy pull compared to what you will bring down on your head and the heads of your relations, not to mention the heads of thousands upon thousands in Israel and Judah. Get up. Get up off your duff and go out to that gate and act like you are grateful. Act like you are thankful. Act appreciative. Act like a king. Get up. Go out to the gate and act like a king and not like a whining crybaby, David. Get up. And David arose and sat in the gate. And there I leave you in suspense to the other end of your brick. Oh, there's lots more coming. Now, please note that we will not have a meeting. Are we ready to go? We're ready to go. Okay. David arose and sat in the gate, and all the people came before the king, or literally, as the Hebrew reads, before his face, his uncovered face. David finally face to face with his victorious army. Thanks to Joab, Joab the manipulator, Joab the motivator, Joab the reality therapy counselor, 
Joab, the shrewd assessor of the political landscape. But has Joab been too shrewd, too perceptive, too manipulative? Will David manifest that proverbial elephant memory? No need for the long-term memory retention. In this case, short-term memory is enough. Verse 13, Joab is demoted. Shrewd, manipulative Joab is replaced by Amasa. As we are reviewing reverse mirrors in this narrative section, Joab himself falls victim to the reverse paradigm. He who was commander of David's army is commander no more. And he who was commander of Absalom's army is promoted to David's right hand. David has indeed snapped to and that with a vengeance. Joab, who had galvanized David into action... Rightfully so, his ulterior motives notwithstanding, now finds himself the victim of his own activism. Does he sense the deja vu? Does he sense the deja vu? He had galvanized David into action in order to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. And that turned out to bite him. And now this Absalom incident, Absalom, Absalom, how do I shake the curse of Absalom? This Absalom incident, which I have managed so well, near perfect outcome if I don't say so myself, now this Absalom incident costs me my job, my position, my prestige, my role as royal manipulator. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my nemesis, my nemesis, mutters Joab, would that you had not been born. And Amasa says, Joab, just you wait, you usurper. I nurse grudges, nurse them, coddle them, brood over them. I nurse grudges, and you will be no different than Abner when the time is right. The curtain falls on Joab here in 1913, but he will be back. Joab will return. Return to be Joab. And manipulate manipulate David once more through cold-blooded, ruthless murder. Joab. Always in character. Always. Now in this continuous narrative of reflective mirrors, the next dramatic unit flashes back a replica of the division between Judah and Israel during the Hebron phase of David's career with Ishbosheth. Chapter 19, verses 9 to 43, is in fact a lengthy reflective chiasm intended to feature once more the tension 
tension between Israel and Judah only this time reprised between the Transjordanian Cisjordanian vectors. Keep in mind the pivot point of this entire drama in verse 15. David moves from Israel to Judah through Gilgal. Gilgal is the hinge point of new beginnings for David and his kingdom, a new beginning which will return the rightful king to his throne, his palace, his royal city, a new beginning which will return David to Jerusalem, the city of God. Our narrator builds his narrative subunits around this restorational drama. You will note the chiastic outline on your handout, which schematizes chapter 19, verses 9 to 43. The A and A prime elements are mirrors of one another. You will notice that the reversal of the order of the names of the tribes or the names of the nations is even mirrored. Israel and Judah first, who will it be? Verses 9 to 15, Judah or Israel in verses 40 to 43, who will it be? In fact, it will be Judah in both instances. Verse 15 of chapter 19 and verse 43 of chapter 19 make it emphatic that Judah will be the leader in this reprise. But then as we descend in the chiasm, we descend through Shimei, matched by Barzillai, and at the center of the chiasm, Mephibosheth and his bedraggled, lame feet before David. Now, the chiasm is not only a mirror reflection of the dramatic reversal here. You will notice that the chiasm features the centrality of Jerusalem to the reversal. We move from the Cisjordanian appearance of Shimei to the Transjordanian appearance of Barzillai, and we sandwich the Jerusalem appearance of Mephibosheth, or the appearance of Mephibosheth from Jerusalem, which will lead David back. Will you please make note of how Mephibosheth of Jerusalem is the center of the narrator's chiasm, as if to foreshadow that what Mephibosheth bears with him is the grace of the restoration of the king to the city of God. Mephibosheth remains a positive character for our narrator, regardless of what the commentators do in suspicion of Mephibosheth, our narrator has no such suspicions.
Watch what the narrator does with his placement of drama. And particularly watch it with Mephibosheth, who by most liberal commentators is regarded as a scheming liar. Pay attention to the narrator. Now, the deliberation of Israel in verses 9 and 10 is a very significant series of parallel concepts, even parallel lines. You will notice the construction of the lines as I have outlined them there on your handout. And I draw your attention to the first word of the speech in verse 9. It is even true in the Hebrew text. The first word of the line is the word king. Now, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. And this is a parallel line on the order of what is A and what is more B. He, king understood, saved us from the hand of the Philistines. Notice the parallel or symmetry of the lines. Saved is symmetrical with delivered. King is symmetrical with he. Enemies is symmetrical with Philistines. What is A and what is more than A, B. There is an expansion in this parallel line. But that parallel line reflects upon Israel's assessment of the original paradigm of their relationship to David time past. They are looking back at what David was to them before Absalom's rebellion. Now, the middle line. And now he has fled from the land, fled from the land from Absalom, Absalom the Messiah, Absalom whom we anointed being now dead. Now notice we have a reverse paradigm in that middle line. Time present, he fled from Absalom, who is also now dead. Reverse paradigm, time present, which ends with Absalom. A stair-step pattern, even with the arrangement of the name Absalom in that line, as if to reflect the descent of Absalom to death. And now the last line. And now, why are we silent on the return of the king? The last word in the last line of this speech, even in the Hebrew text, is exactly the same as the first word in the Hebrew text. In the first line, verse 9, it is the word king. We have come full circle. At the end of this declaration, we have reversed the reverse paradigm Time present, we are back to the original paradigm, and now we will restore the king, and why should we remain silent? We will go back to the way it was, time present, time past, so that in time present and time future, David will be returned as our Melech, our king. The paradigmatic reversal begins and ends with king The word king, Israel, reverses itself. Reverses itself in loyalty to Absalom, 
by the return of the king, renewed loyalty to David. And David, David then slights the elders of Judah with, why are you the last to bring back the king? Verse 11. He doubles the pointed phrase in verse 12 and slights Joab with Amasa, verse 13. Notice the duplicate again, my bone and my flesh, verse 11, verse 12 and 13. The duplicate by which David folds Amasa into Judah and ejects Joab, thus identifying Joab with Israel and Absalom. David fulfills Joab's remark in verse 6, Joab's chiastic remark in verse 6. David loves his enemies, Amasa, and hates his friends, Joab. Or is David playing Absalom here? Is David doing what Absalom did, appointing Amasa commander of his army. Look back to chapter 17, verse 25. And note the phrase in verse 13. May God do so to me. A precise replication of may God do so to me when David declares after the funeral of Abner. In 2 Samuel 3, 25, that he vows this vow. May God do so to me. In both cases, here and in 2 Samuel 3, Joab is a player. In both cases, there is treachery and injustice. In both cases, someone has gotten even for an affront. Is David mirroring Joab? in getting even with his alter ego. Hmm. Verse 15, and the mirror of return. Shuv in Hebrew, going back, a crossing over again, crossing of the Jordan, as Israel of old crossed the Jordan under Joshua. A crossing from exile to homecoming. A crossing from the old to the new. A crossing from Mahanaim to Jerusalem, yes. A new beginning is in fact in front of David. And now to verse 16. In verse 16, we meet Shimei... And the narrative mirror rises up before us as our narrator plays upon this character to signal the ethos of the return of the king. As the tide of the war of rebellion turns, so Shimei turns with the tide. This chameleon, this opportunist, this fawning hypocrite, is accompanied by another hypocrite, a hypocrite and a liar, Ziba, the servant of Saul, and his retinue. Impressive display, this, these 
Benjamites, these members of the tribe of Saul, these fawning mountebanks, these birds of a feather sticking together to make an impression on David. Shimei with his 1,000 able-bodied men and Ziba with his 35 trim and fit able-bodied men. Urgency compels them, impels them to reduce the distance between the remote and the proximate, between Bahurim and Jerusalem and the Jordan. Urgency. Urgency is the handmaid of hypocrisy. Push it through. Rush to it. Don't wait, but put on the show. Make the appearance. Look abject and contrite while the cameras roll, all the while retaining your devious, mischievous subterfuge, putting on your political theater. Keep it up. Keep it up. Urgency. Urgency. And hypocrisy. And David, David is ready to be impressed. David is ready to be fawned over and preened with words, words from the spokesman of a thousand and thirty-five able-bodied men, men able to carry his body and entourage over Jordan. The political game is played on David and He is all too happy to be snookered. Shimei gets a free pass, though Abishai protests. And Ziba, Ziba gets half of what is not lawfully his. Ziba gets the benefit of a politician, a politician stealing land from a cripple because he was impressed, impressed with the liar and his 35-man retinue. Oh, brother, that was a powerful lobby. I'd better bend to them. Cripple, who cares about a lame man? He hasn't got any clout. And don't bother me with details. Don't bother me with your defense your lone, solitary, disheveled, crippled defense. Don't speak to me any more of this thing. Don't bother me, Mephibosheth, with the charge of slander, abandonment, disloyalty, and deceit. Don't bother me with my covenant promise to your father, with my pledge that you could eat at my table all your days. Mephibosheth, don't bother me. Don't mess with my conscience. I said you and Ziba divide the land. I don't want to hear any more about it. You hear? You hear? Shut up. Zip it. Shimei confesses his sin, verse 20. I have sinned. 
Exactly the same words King Saul used in 1 Samuel 26, 21. Exactly the same Hebrew phrase. Now, now, do we think Saul was sincere when he declared, I have sinned? Do we? Then why do we suppose that this Saulide, Shimei, this Benjamite, Shimei, this cursor of David, because he is a Benjamite, Saulide, is sincere when he blurts out, I have sinned? Surely we're not that naive. Or are we? Or can we see the mirror that the narrator has placed right in front of our nose? Do we note any remorse? Do we, mo- do we note any remorse for particular sin here? Does Shimei repent of particular sins, particularly as the Westminster Confession declares? Does he repent by saying, forgive me for cursing you? Forgive me for throwing stones at you? Forgive me, David, for wishing you dead. Forgive me for hurling insults and dust at you on your way east. Does he specify any of the aggravations, the aggravations of his sin? No. He uses the one phrase covers all approach so that he can snooker David. Snooker David without having to repent of his egregious sin against the king point by point by particular and specific point of confession. Shimei is not repentant. He's just caught with the realization that if he doesn't show some obeisance, some generic declaration of wrong, even guilt, if he doesn't make a show of repentance urgently, he may get from David what he hoped David would get, a death sentence. Self-interest makes penitence of many hypocrites, Shimei and Ziba included. But genuine contrition, real being cut to the quick, Sincere, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Real confession like that will never be found in their devious, conniving, political hearts. No, 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 no. Don't miss what the narrator is doing with his mirrors here. David declares an amnesty. Not only is Shimei, former Saul and Absalom loyalist, the beneficiary, all Saul and Absalom loyalists benefit from the clemency of the returning king. No man shall be put to death in Israel today, verse 22. Shimei is spared today. 
This day of David's amnesty, Shimei receives clemency. But another day, not today, not this day, but on another day when the life of the repriever approaches death, it will be clear that what occurs here at the Jordan is not a cancellation, not an annulment of punishment. It is only a delay to another day. And when that day dawns, that ominous day dawns, as it does twice over in emphatic duplication, 1 Kings 2, 37 and 42, as that ominous day dawns twice over in that narrator's narration. Shimei's hypocritical gray hairs will not go down to the grave in peace. Rather, justice will be served at last when Judgment Day gathers Shimei into its revelation, and Shimei is judged the hypocrite he always was on the day of his own bloody death. No, David has not been as snookered as it might appear at the Jordan, though he has been snookered in appearances at the Jordan. He has seen Shimei, after all, for what he is, what he was, what he always has been. He has seen Shimei a cursor, a grievous cursor of the Lord's anointed, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8. The meeting with Mephibosheth is framed. It is framed, Bashalom, in peace, verse 24 and verse 30. This is the fourth time we have met Mephibosheth and the third incident involving David and the son of Jonathan. I refer you to my article, A King and a Cripple, at krooks.com for a more thorough and comprehensive discussion of the Mephibosheth narratives in 2 Samuel. The framing device here in verse 24 and 30 has come, meaning the king has come in peace or safely, as the New American Standard Version reads in verse 30. Here I fault the New American Standard for not translating consistent with the narrator's frame. Both verse 24 and verse 30 should be translated has come in peace, because both of those verbs verses include the Hebrew term bashalom, which means in peace. The parallel <coughs> duplication is an intentional narrative bracket around the scene in which Mephibosheth comes from Jerusalem 
to meet King David at the Jordan in order to go back to Jerusalem with the returning king. Mephibosheth's approach to David is framed in contentment, in humiliation, in joy, but shalom in peace of conscience. He appears with untrimmed beard or mustache and untrimmed feet. He has not washed his clothes since the day David departed from his palace. All the marks, all the external physical marks of sorrow, lamentation, grieving, perhaps even ceremonial uncleanness, all the marks are upon this cripple. Mephibosheth has been a man in mourning. A man in mourning since David was forced into exile. David, however, appears to take no notice. No notice whatsoever. Our narrator notices and draws the picture of Mephibosheth so that we will notice. Even frames his picture of Mephibosheth with a parallel duplication so his readers will notice this cripple. Our inspired narrator is revealing Mephibosheth's character by his framing device, by his physical description of this bedraggled cripple, by his empathy with the figure of the son of Jonathan in the presence of his king. And our narrator realizes that David takes no notice, does not really see Mephibosheth, see his marks of mourning and humiliation evident in his physical appearance. David takes no notice but rather demands, why didn't you come with me? Does our narrator want his reader to retort, David, why didn't you take him with you? What kind of question is that? That question is certainly as appropriate as David's insensitive query In other words, we as the readers have the right to fire back a question at David in the light of his insensitivity to the bedraggled figure in front of him. Mephibosheth's self-defense is twofold. First, Ziba deceived me 
by refusing to saddle a donkey so that I could follow the king. Was it more than refusal? Ah, was it more than refusal to saddle a donkey? Did Ziba, when he brought all those provisions on donkeys to David in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, did Ziba steal Mephibosheth's donkey, thus making it impossible for the cripple to find a mount and transportation eastward to David? Did Ziba actually contrive to isolate and maroon Mephibosheth in Jerusalem so that he could not contradict his lies? Hmm. Second plank of Mephibosheth's self-defense He defends himself by charging Ziba with slander. The accusation that Ziba put before David in chapter 16, verse 3, when he alleged that Mephibosheth remained in Jerusalem because he hoped that the kingdom of Israel would be restored to the house of Saul as David abandoned his throne and his capital, Mephibosheth labels that slander as it was. Mephibosheth is a victim, a truly disabled victim, a victim of deceit, theft, and slander. But Mephibosheth, will you look at Mephibosheth? The narrator wants you to look at Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth does not exploit his victim status, nor does he exploit his disabled status. It is enough for Mephibosheth that he had been shown mercy, that he ate at the table of his king. As good as dead. King James Version reads, as good as a dead dog. Yet the king extended life to him at the royal table. It is sufficient for this lame man, bedraggled, slandered, unjustly deprived of his rightful inheritance, half of his rightful inheritance. It is sufficient for this lame man, unjustly treated, even by his king, it is enough that the protological David has come to his house, Bashalom, in peace. That, that is sufficient. Having the king 
in peace. In his city, city of God. That is enough for this cripple. Ah, What a man. What a man. The Barzillai incident also has a framing device. Verse 31, he comes down. Verse 39, he returns or goes back up. And in between verse 31 and 39, the narrative bracket, Barzillai sandwiched by David. David speaks, verse 33. Barzillai speaks, verses 34 to 37. David speaks, verse 38. And the speech, the speech involves reciprocity. In fact, perfect reciprocity. Barzillai sustained David in Mahanaim of Gilead, verse 32. David reciprocates by offering, exact same Hebrew phrase, offering to sustain Barzillai in Jerusalem of Judah, verse 33. And while Barzillai demurs the invitation to cross over Jordan to the West Bank with David, he offers his son, Kimham. Kimham is likely Barzillai's son. He offers his son as his surrogate. To which David responds in duplicate parallel reciprocity. Verse 37. Barzillai suggests David may do for Kimham what is good in your sight. Verse 38. David reciprocates exact Hebrew phrase. I will do for him what is good in your sight. At 80 years of age, <clears throat> Barzillai is not attracted nor tempted by royal food or drink or by palace singers, male or female. Verse 35, a little tiny insight into palace life in the 11th century B.C. Very interesting insight. Male and female singers in the palace court, at the meals, at the tables. He too, Barzillai, is content, content with his lot, like Mephibosheth, content to die in his native land, in his hometown, to be buried beside his mother and father. Verse 37. With these realities of the twilight of his life, Barzillai is content. They, at fourscore years, they are enough for him. The narrative mirror which positions three characters addressing David on his way into exile 
and three characters addressing David on his way back from exile does indeed present a paradigm of characterization. Shimei, the cursor on the outbound route, is Shimei, the hypocrite, on the inbound route. Ziba, the opportunistic liar on the outbound route, is Ziba, the opportunistic thief on the inbound route. Hushai, the faithful counselor on the outbound route, finds his counterpart in Barzillai on the inbound route. As the outbound characters Hushai, Ziba, Shimei, in that order, you will note I have omitted Mephibosheth, for he is reflected in Ziba a mirror opposite of the grasping, scheming thief and liar. Hushai, Ziba, Shimei form a descending paradigm of virtue and loyalty. So the inbound characters form an ascending paradigm of virtue and loyalty. And you will notice the chiastic descent and ascent, which I have outlined on your handout. Hushai and Barzillai, reflective of one another. Ziba, reflective of himself. Shimei, reflective of himself. And the descent towards the center of the chiastic reversal reverses itself and ascends to the inbound return to Jerusalem. I will not force the observation that Hushai and Barzillai both have the same vowel ending to their names, the A-I sound in Hebrew. I won't push it too far. Hushai is virtuous to a fault, loyal to his king and dedicated to preserving his throne and kingdom. Ziba is a liar, even a thug, and a devious opportunist, appearing to be just in his cause, but part of the character downgrade or downward character spiral our narrator unfolds. Shimei is an authentic villain, hating David with curses, pelting him with rocks, showering him with dust, plaguing him from a safe distance parallel to his retreat with incessant noise, stones, and dirt. There is no ambiguity in Shimei. He is a thoroughly bad apple. Yet our narrator mirrors these three on the return to the Jordan in reverse order. Reverse ascending order. Shimei, first who appears virtuous in his confession of sin, is still the Shimei of old, an unambiguous David hater who addresses the king in reverse outward or external mode and expression while in fact being inwardly or internally unchanged and contemptuous 
and the flip-flop of the parallel between Shimei on the descending paradigm and the ascending paradigm is our narrator telling you that. Watch what the narrator does with his narrative. Shimei saves his neck temporarily by his fawning outward hypocrisy, which in fact cloaks his genuine inward character. Our narrator places him in the mirror outbound and inbound in order to alert us that Shimei is the same as in the same position character-wise. He is disloyal and an inveterate cursor of the Lord's anointed. Zeba is the same too. In the descending order of David's outbound journey, Zeba appears as the supporter of David against the scheming, traitorous Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, who has only used David to stay alive and comfortable by eating at David's table. Zeba inbound is the mirror of Zeba outbound. At the fords of the Jordan, he makes an appearance once more, silently standing upon his previous slander of Mephibosheth, barring Mephibosheth from saddling a donkey and riding after David, stealing Mephibosheth's lands from him by misrepresentation and falsehood. The speechless Ziba in 1917 is characterized by the plaintive, poignant, cripple, Mephibosheth. Now there is a masterful mirror reflection, a masterful antithetic mirror reflection. Mephibosheth being the mirror of Ziba by his testimony. From the lame victim of injustice, we learn that Ziba is unchanged. Like his companion Shimei, his voluble companion Shimei, more noise from Shimei, Ziba is an opportunist, exploiting the occasion at hand by putting in an appearance, putting in an opportune appearance in order to guarantee his ill-gotten gains and his abuse of a lame man crippled in both of his feet. Barzillai is the counterpart of the faithful loyalist Hushai, one who gives selflessly in order to sustain the rightful king and his kingdom. Barzillai's virtue shines in his honor to David, in his provision for David, in his contentment that David's kingdom is secure once more, and he may return to his native land and hometown and die in peace. As Hushai helped secure that kingdom on the descent to the Jordan from Jerusalem, so Barzillai is pleased 
to have helped sustain and secure that kingdom on the ascent from the Jordan back to Jerusalem. Our inspired narrator juxtaposes the characters in this drama in order to reflect upon their character as David flees from Jerusalem and as David returns to Jerusalem. The pivot point, the hinge point of Gilgal and the new beginning for David and his kingdom goes by way of reciprocal character reflection. Is David alert to the mirror characterization which the downward spiral and the upward spiral place before him? Is he? Hmm. But our narrator, our narrator has penned a masterpiece of dramatic characterization under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. You are behold before beholding involved in a narrative drama which exceeds the finest talents of the world's best authors and authoresses. Do you realize what you are sitting before with this man who has written this narrative? I haven't even begun to penetrate into the brilliance of what he has done. I have merely scratched the surface, and yet you sense that what he's done with his language and his storytelling is to show you the soul of the people that he's portraying. Do you get it? Do you follow the clues that is laid down in this powerful, dramatic narrative? Or do you just read through the story of David and remember your favorites? He slew Goliath. He captured Jerusalem. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He wrote the 51st Psalm. And you forget the choreography of this narrator who has chosen every scene in his drama to communicate to you, his reader, the powerful characterization of sinners before the face of God in history. Ah, we have not begun to plumb the depths of the mind 
of this writer. And yet we make a stab. And so after my lengthy presentation, your opportunity at rejoinder or further penetration. Yes, Miss Dennison. <laughs> well, Professor, um, I have a question about uh, the structure that you present on the first page of the handout at the bottom of the page with the, uh, the chiastic structure of 199 through 43. Do you have a B, a shimei, and then B prime of Um in terms of character, that doesn't work. No, I'm not suggesting characterization at that point by that structural outline. You'll notice that I've indicated I borrowed it, but I've actually modified it from uh, Ronald Youngblood. <clears throat> but uh, what I'm noting there is the uh, arrangement of the characters as they appear in sequence, but I'm also uh, picking up, I'm adding that the material in, in brackets is something that is original to me. It is not uh, uh, <clears throat> original with Youngblood. And uh, I think that his chiastic schema works. It even works better with my modification because of the geographical centralization or flip-flop or reversal that's occurred. That's the reason I've included the geographical locations there as we descend. But no, I'm not indicating characterization there because the characterization paradigm is wider than chapter 19. It goes all the way back to chapter 16. But in the structure of this particular chapter, this is what flows out chiastically from what is there in chapter 19. And I'll take that more immediate chiasm, and I'm going to make a broader chiasm going all the way back to chapter 16 with uh, what I outlined on the back page. As you can see, <clears throat> the mirror reflection of Hushai, Ziba, and Shimei as descending and ascending paradigm. But that, that ties in four chapters, not just this one chapter. <coughs> yes, Ling? Is Barzillai a I don't think so. I, I think he's a member of the Transjordanian uh, Jewish Gileadites. I don't think he's a, shall we say, Syrian Canaanite or uh, uh, Gentile otherite of uh, any, time, any kind. I think he's part of that Transjordanian group that belongs to Israel as a re result of the three tribes that were on the other side. Yes, somebody else with a question. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> I'm assuming... I love to tease these women. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm assuming, maybe wrongfully, that Hushai doesn't return to the narrative. If that's correct, you, what do you make of that? I think that he's reflected in his counterpart, Barzillai, at the end, because Barzillai does not occur in the descent towards the Jordan on the Cisjordanian side. In other words, there's an absence of both of them, and that is parallel. And in so doing, the reciprocation between them is a reciprocation between their character as loyal and virtuous, full-bodied full characters who are good characters in the drama. One on the one side, 
the other on the other side. One on the beginning of the descent, one on the on the end of the of the of, of the end of the ascent. What, what I'm wondering is, notice Hushai doesn't return, but the two evil characters do return. Do you think that there's any sense of the narrative of Hushai willing to serve and and his name? being of no concern to him after that point by contrast to the evil characters or anything like that. Uh, no, that's speculation. I don't, I don't think it's beyond the uh, realm of possibility, but the, the paradigm descent is fully virtuous, unambiguous character Hushai. Fully virtuous, unambiguous character Barzillai. Match one another, exactly. Okay, ambiguous character Zeba. Ambiguous because you're not really sure about his testimony about Mephibosheth. You solve that on the other side of that paradigm. Okay, Zeba in the second appearance, now you know what he is. Shimei, unambiguously, consistently evil. See, the descending paradigm, flip-flop at the point of descent. Okay, we've reached the bottom of the pit with Shimei. We start with the bottom of the pit and we ascend to Barzillai. So this is a moral, this is an ethical paradigm. It's also a character paradigm. It's a characterization ethical paradigm. That's 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 the reason he's matching them up, in my opinion. Now, now uh, uh, William Alter, Robert Alter, uh, he wants to put Ittai as the corresponding figure to Barzillai. No, 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 no. Fackelman's absolutely right. It's, it's not going to work at all. Barzillai matches up with Hushai, not Ittai. But but Alter does that in order to take a pot shot at Falkelman. And, and, and <laughs> here's these scholars with their you know their intramural debates. I mean you'll rec- you'll recognize some of that uh, discussion because you'll recognize Alter's name you know at UC Berkeley, a great Hebraist. You know he's written a very interesting book on David. Yes, uh, Kristen again. Okay, um, you I've heard having heard your sermon. You made the point that... Are you trying to say that I use her? <laughs> <laughs> that um, Mephibosheth is, is content to uh, subordinate himself in the return of the king. And um, But you also made the point that Barzillai and Mephibosheth are doubled here. So is Barzillai Mephibosheth's future, so to speak? Is that contentment that Mephibosheth has in the king's return... And the doubling that goes on between Barzillai and Mephibosheth in their contentment, is that a projection of Mephibosheth's future contentment and his his growing old and the contentment in the peace of the land that he has? Is that the end of Mephibosheth's story for us? I, I think that there is an illustration beyond Mephibosheth's appearance here in chapter 19 in the direction that you're going. But I think the narrator climaxed it with Mephibosheth simply making that final statement. It is enough that the king has returned in Bashalom, in peace. So he doesn't need to say anything more about that, though, with the fact that Barzillai is content, you get another reinforcement of this contentment uh, paradigm, this contentment module, even as contentment makes a person willing to get less than the best or less than the greatest. And Barzillai is not interested in this great palace in Jerusalem. He's only interested in, hum- in his own humble uh, uh, city and, and uh, abode. Uh, that is true of Mephibosheth. You know, let him have the whole thing. Let him have the whole thing. I, I, I care not what he de- gets or takes from me. I care only 
that you have returned. You are the Lord's anointed. You have come back to your city in peace. I can live with my rags. I can live with my untrimmed feet. I can live with my untrimmed bit. I can live my on my unwashed clothes. I can live in in shreds and rags, but the king has come back in peace. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. The marvelous man of suffering, contentment, and willingness to be lower than his king. Let him be first. Let him increase. Let me decrease. Link. Do you think that there is a contrast being made between Mephibosheth and Absalom? Um, Because, you know, they are both signs of royalty, uh, except the one is this, you know, outwardly beautiful man with a reprobate heart. The other one is outwardly, uh, as you said, outwardly almost like ceremonially unclean. (laughs) Um, And yet he actually reflects the younger David in his uh, attitudes towards Saul, the king at the time. That he's actually humble um, and saying, you know, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, whereas Absalom, his own son, did so. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's possible to consider the two characters as antithetic or contrastive. Um, does the narrator do that? Uh, is he establishing a contrast in his characterization of the two? Uh, I'm not sure of that because I don't see any other commonality except the royal identity. Uh, so uh, this will be something I'd have to work on, or I'll allow you to work on it. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the point is it's, it, it's something I'd have to think about. I'd have to start looking at the narrator uh, and his account from that point of view, and I haven't done it. So uh, I think it would be useful to consider them as, as contrastive characterizations, but I, as a narrator doing it in order to establish that, that I'm not sure of. From, from the three, you know, these instances, I mean, we were making a big point about the word shalom being the last word to Absalom, shalom being that word to David, and then now with Mephibosheth saying shalom. That's an interesting point of contact and certainly be worth exploring, yes. Good observation. I told you I wasn't at the bottom of this. Go ahead, Link. Are the Gileadites... I, I was trying to figure out who the Gileadites are. I mean... You're they're, they're, they're in that region between the north end of the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea and the south end of the Sea of Galilee. They're in that midpoint of the Transjordanian inheritance. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the inheritance of the tribes that were given that region, which is called Gilead, but uh, I, I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that places them outside the nation of Israel. That's the reason I don't think they're Gentiles. Well, I'm just wondering, are because he is actually lumped together with Shoni, the Ammonite, and uh, Machir, the somethingite. <laughs> the something. I mean, originally, when, when, when David actually crosses the Jordan, effectively leaves the land of promise, 
and enters and enters that part outside of the Jordan. Yeah, but don't forget, David has conquered this land and added it to his kingdom. It's already part of what he has subdued. He subdued the Ammonites, and that region belongs to the kingdom of David, which is stands, extends from Beersheba up to Dan. Uh, so he's folded them in, even if they're not a part of the original patrimony of the distribution of the land. I note uh, that you're right about the association with more Gentile figures, but does that mean that those Gentile figures have also been folded into the Transjordanian Israel? Well, they might have been, but they're the ones bringing him uh, milk and honey across the Jordan on the other side. And it's the brothers of Judah that are being so delay in calling their king back into Jerusalem. I mean, it's just very ironic to me. Uh, it won't be the first time that we've seen irony in this narrative. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, remember you have next week off. And enjoy your break. I will enjoy mine.